census? Ah, the census is a special time when we count every single person in the country. Do kids and babies count too? Of course. Counting everyone in your home helps support your neighborhood by funding schools, hospitals, and more. So complete the census by calling, going online, or returning your form by mail. It's totally private. Visit 2020census.gov and make your family count. Brought to you by Carnegie Corporation of New York and the Ad Council. In the late 60s and 70s, America was moving toward an era of peace, love, and harmony. But not everyone got the memo. The founding fathers of Columbus hockey traded protests for penalty minutes, Woodstock for wood sticks, and sit-ins for sin bins. Give peace a chance? Not a chance. Menacing, merciless, and mustachioed, this band of goal scorers and gladiators put Columbus on course to discover a whole new game. Full-time hockey? These guys hold the patent. For more than a decade, Ohio's capital city was at the center of some of hockey's most intriguing international incidents. A film chronicling Columbus's teams of the International Hockey League. Facing off, 2020. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, everybody, get uh, your popcorn ready because this is going to be a fun one. This is uh, Good Seats Still Available, of course, your trusty little weekly show that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. My name is Tim Hanlon. Thank you for finding us and downloading us and putting us into your earbuds we appreciate you doing so, and we appreciate you uh, tuning in for this uh, fun-filled episode as we go back to minor league hockey. Again, we try not to uh, do too much in the minor leagues, but I tell you, we uh, we do generate a whole bunch of inbounds. And uh, our episode 169 was probably among our more uh, recently popular uh, shows. It was the uh, Columbus Chill episode uh, that we did with our pals David Pateson and Craig Meritz, who... Uh, regaled us in the 1990s uh, uh, exploits of a minor league hockey team in Columbus, Ohio, known as the Chill, which kind of took the not only the Columbus, Ohio market, but also that of uh, professional sports and minor league sports uh, specifically uh, by storm in terms of the uh, standout uh, promotional nature and the the buzz generated in a town at the time in the early and mid 1990s, which was uh, bereft of anything really hockey-centric. Uh, strange as it might seem, because Ohio, obviously, a pretty strong hockey hotbed. Uh, and Lord knows there have been many attempts over the decades uh, to domicile uh, some professional goodness around hockey in uh, the Buckeye state. Uh, Cincinnati, a couple of uh, cups of coffee with like the Cincinnati Stingers of the WHA, and Cleveland uh, having both uh, a WHA franchise in the 70s uh, as well as uh, the Barons of the NHL. The WHA version, of course, was the uh, Cleveland uh, Crusaders, I think it was. Yes, it was. So, you know, uh, but that said, right, these are teams that uh, have come and gone or came and went. And Columbus kind of sort of had the same thing, but more on the minor league level. And, and we've talked about Columbus, uh, Ohio, as a uh, now a major league sports market, obviously with the Columbus Crew SC of Major League Soccer, uh, the Columbus Magic of the American Soccer League. You remember them, the Columbus Clippers, uh, certainly in the in, in minor league baseball. Uh, we've talked about 
But of course, now too, the uh, probably the uh, uh, the biggest example thus far is the Columbus Blue Jackets of the NHL. Well, we knew uh, from our previous episode that the Chill were pretty much the uh, uh, the sort of the, the the pavement, if you will, the ground, the grounding, the foundation, the immediate predecessor, uh, not only of uh, of the, the team, the Blue Jackets, but the the arena in which they're domiciled too. But uh, as you might remember, that episode one sixty nine. We did talk about what was before the, even the chill. And if you remember, uh, there was a, a pretty substantial gap. I think the uh, the chill started, I want to say, in 1991, 1992 or so. Um, there were, count them, three minor league, international hockey league teams in Columbus uh, that uh, ran from Geez, I guess it was 1966 as the original Columbus Checkers. Uh, in 1971, a, uh, a, uh, a rehabbed team after a year departure uh, from 71 to 73, the Columbus Golden Seals. And yes, they were related to the California Golden Seals that we've talked about uh, on a number of different episodes. Uh, previously. And then from 74 to 77, that team became known as the Columbus Owls. Those are three franchises in the IHL that uh, preceded the chill. However, a gap from 77 to 91 uh, kind of was an indication that maybe Columbus just wasn't ready either at the time or maybe ever for uh, a professional hockey franchise, minor league at any level or major league for that matter at all. Uh, but this is uh, sort of the continuing story, I guess the last sort of piece of what is that we've now stumbled into the uh, the professional hockey history of Columbus, Ohio that uh, you know obviously resides in the Blue Jackets today. but I gotta tell you these three logos and these three teams, if the Blue Jackets in addition to the chill by the way, don't uh, sort of uh, uh, pay homage to these teams. Well, I'll tell you, there's something grossly uh, out of whack uh, in terms of uh, the foundations uh, laid by uh, by these franchises that we're going to be talking about today with our guest, Eric Weltner, as we get into the International Hockey League of the 60s and 70s, and in particular, the three franchises, let's call them all distinct franchises, or at least incarnations, in Columbus, they being the Checkers, the Golden Seals and the Owls. And, and as you will see, if you haven't seen already in our social media this week or on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com, just search up this episode, the logos and the imagery and the graphic design of these three franchises are just absolutely fantastic. Unfortunately, we have no sponsors this week that uh, uh, that have any of these uh, uh jerseys or these shirts or these logos uh, in their wares. But I got to tell you, there are some out there. Uh, we highly encourage you to search them up, seek them out. Uh, and they're just fantastic. Uh, the checkers stuff with the, as you can imagine, the name of uh, the checkerboards, uh, the golden seals. Of course, we know the iconography from that, uh, from our previous episodes about the NHL version. Yes, this was the minor league uh, farm team for those uh, two or three years owned by Charlie Finley. We get into that part of the conversation and the owls, uh, the uh, it's, it's just a, a arguably something that could live on today. Uh, not dated at all. Very modern and a sleek looking um, uh, iconography that uh, sort of blends, of course, what you would imagine an owl to look like with that of a crest of a hockey team, all of them fascinating to no end. 
Uh, we don't want to necessarily obsess about artwork here on this uh, this show, but uh, it's fantastic stuff. And uh, if you haven't seen them, uh, search up, uh, you know, either on, on Google or or wherever you find good imagery online. And uh, you will uh, be delighted uh, to see both the checkers, the golden seals and the owls uh, imagery. And we were happy to uh, to bring those back into the fore with our guest again this week, Eric Weltner. He the writer, the producer, the director, the uh, chief cook and bottle washer for uh, the movie that you heard the teaser for there at the beginning called International Incidents. Uh, it is a, uh, a film, It's uh, he calls it, uh, 80 minutes of old-time hockey gold. It uh, debuts on October 15th on Vimeo. And uh, we'll give you some more promotional goodness about uh, how to uh, see that for yourself. Uh, it's coming up uh, in a couple of weeks as we drop this episode. It's uh, it's a hoot. We've had the opportunity to see it ahead of time, and uh, it's uh, it's great stuff. And we get into all of it with Eric Weltner in just a few moments' time. Uh, please stick around for fun minor league hockey. If you ever watched Slapshot, the uh, the great iconic movie, well, I got to tell you, uh, a lot of what uh, went on in Columbus in the International Hockey League was very much. Uh, very closely related to a lot of the stuff that you see in that film. So if you're a fan of, uh, of Slapshot, you will be a fan of this episode and this documentary about the various Columbus International Hockey League teams coming up in a moment's time. Before we do so, we want to say hello, hello to uh, our brand new sponsor this week, our pal Judd Lasher, uh, who is the chief proprietor of our friends at 417 Helmets. That's 417helmets.com or 417helmets.com, whichever you prefer. Uh, a fantastic site, and we appreciate Judd reaching out. Uh, if you are just into the sport of football and you love to commemorate uh, teams both uh, currently as well as those of your, uh, you will uh, you could do worse than to uh, stop by 417helmets.com. And yes, you're going to find many helmets uh, lovingly crafted, uh, a hobby turned amazing uh, professional uh, site for great imagery. If you uh, want to remember uh, some of your favorite football teams from, uh, you know, certainly the NFL and the, and the NCAA and even some, uh, uh, you know, smaller collegiates like the NAIA and, and some of their teams. But how about teams from the USFL or the XFL or the WFL or how about the World League of American Football, maybe some of the CFL? both past and present. Uh, there are some high school helmets uh, commemorated there too. And, and just, and many more. If you want your own custom helmet made, Judd and his friends at 417helmets.com can, can do you good for all of those things and more. It's a great assortment of mini helmets. They are done to perfection. Uh, the uh, the colors, the, the logos, all done with uh, painstaking accuracy. Uh, and uh, the highest quality materials that go into them. They are a great gift for any football fan in your life, or maybe for yourself, for that matter. Uh, and if you want to uh, a great, get a great mini helmet to commemorate an old team, celebrate a current team, or maybe even custom make one for a team that's either not been made, or maybe there's just one is conjuring up in your head, 417helmets.com is the place to go. And of course, we would not introduce a new sponsor to this endeavor, Without a discount code, of course, the promo code for you there is Good Seats. Yes, at 417helmets.com. Make sure you use the promo code Good Seats and get 10% off all of your great helmets at 
Judd.com. Thank you, Judd, and thank you for giving them a try. We appreciate their new sponsorship to our little show, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, highlighting some more great stuff from 417helmets.com in the weeks and months to come for sure. But for now, we uh, put the uh, football helmetry aside, and we get into back into hockey and a minor league style of hockey. It's the International Hockey League and the three, count them, teams that uh, skated through Columbus, Ohio, back in the 60s and early 1970s. Here we go. Here's our chat with Eric Weltner, a conversation we had just a few weeks back. And uh, get ready, please. Enjoy. You must have been among the uh, surprisingly large number uh, that uh, listened to our episode 169 with uh, with David Pateson and, and Craig Mertz around the Columbus Chill, because uh, here we are again talking about uh, minor league hockey. Again, something we, we try to we, we don't necessarily look for stories in, in the quote unquote minor leagues, because Lord knows there's enough in the uh, major leagues as well as the major challenger leagues to uh, keep us going perhaps for a couple of lifetimes. But, you know, we like good stories and especially, you know, teams that uh, made a go at it for whatever reasons and then are longer around. And we learned pretty uh, pretty quickly in the Columbus Chill story that there was absolutely this uh, minor league hockey thing of substance in Columbus uh, that was uh, a thing for some time and then just almost uh, seemingly overnight kind of just disappeared and, and lay fallow or, or, or no longer until the chill came back in the 90s. So I guess before we sort of get into that story, who are you and why is this story of interest to you? And, uh, and uh, maybe a little background on, on all that. I am Eric Weltner, and I grew up in the suburb of Columbus, Ohio, called Gehanna, which was just a few miles east of downtown and I grew up loving hockey and especially got really turned on by the Columbus Owls who were the third team of the triumvirate that played in the IHL at the historic Fairgrounds Coliseum and I just uh, embraced them as far as my team because in Columbus we didn't have what we would call major league sports. Now the city was not unfamiliar with major sports when we had the Archie Griffin winning back-to-back Heismans and there were some national championships and Woody Hayes and his his fame and his infamy. So, you know, big sports were there. They just weren't under the major league professional moniker. And so when the Owls came about and I got interested in, in the sport and the game and my friend introduced me to the to the owls in particular, it just seemed like something that I loved and they were my squad at that point. So I followed them closely and just had a a real liking for them. I read every box score in the morning and begged my parents to take me as much as possible. And, uh, they just got into my blood. So this is not a, a new sort of, uh, reason or adjunct for stories like this as, as many listeners of this show have, uh, uh, long and uh, over overwrought uh, uh, heard me talk about uh, my entree to this sort of weird fascination of teams and leagues no longer with uh, came from my interest in in a uh, sport, uh, the sport of soccer and the New York Cosmos. And, and obviously soccer fans will know the Columbus Magic were a thing for a year or two. 
but it's it's not a surprise, right? It's it's an impressionable time in one's life, especially if you're sort of the young, sort of stereotypical all-American male who's interested in sports and stuff, right? And and you kind of look around and sort of see, hey, what's around and and you know things to go do and see, and 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 sports is absolutely one of them. But but you're describing Columbus is not sort of the shall we say, most fertile of, quote-unquote, professional sports domains. That is correct. Yeah, we didn't have major league professional. We'd had a lot of professional, you know, entities. As you mentioned, soccer, we had some minor league basketball and football and all of that. But most of the sports dollars and time on the the newscast went to the Ohio State Buckeyes, whether that was football or basketball or football. (laughs) Um, It was that intense so pretty much everybody else who came in took um, a, a distant second place except for in the summer the columbus clippers which were a tremendous and still are a tremendous triple a affiliation back then with the new york yankees and george steinbrenner was very kind to columbus and uh spent a lot of money on the team and the facilities there so uh that was in the summer but otherwise it was uh basketball and football primarily yes and an episode that we uh, had uh with uh, dave herman we talked about the uh what we call the almost yankees of 1981 where basically that uh they, there was an elevation almost frankly to major league status somewhat uh clandestinely because uh, they were quite the thing when major league baseball went on strike and the clippers were essentially kind of stocked with and uh aided and abetted by the yankees parent organization uh, but i digress let me get into, or maybe you can set the table for, the Owls, right? Which is kind of, I want to say the end of this story, but the beginning of yours. And maybe you can kind of give a sense of how that sort of went and then and then maybe how we go backwards and forwards uh, accordingly. Yeah, I'll just sort of link this with a, with a conduit here. Um, the Owls were the third team of, of the four professional IHL squads that came through Columbus and that was the one that I um, was involved with most and since I did I did like them so much and I loved the game so much I was just crestfallen as a whatever 12 year old when they when they left town and I was like all right what are we going to do now they we, we don't have hockey and it's my favorite sport and uh, I really related to a lot of the players because they were so approachable they you know they would come see us uh my mom would take my friend Leo and me to practices on days off, like on maybe President's Day or something. We would go to the rink, and they would just come around and give us the broken sticks and sign autographs and whatever and just be very welcoming to us. So we just thought they were the greatest. And so when they went away, and I I went through high school and, and college and all that, I, I played. And um, I, I played, but not terribly well. But uh, but I played, and I still continue to love it and pursue it in other avenues. But we, but we just didn't have a team. So then we you you covered the chill with Craig and David, and that was a whole new flavor. Um, that was a 13 year hiatus, I believe. And then they came to town, and they just sort of blew the top off with all of their promotions and everything, and tapped into the youth market and marketed the game differently than what it had been back in the 60s and 70s when the Checkers, Golden Seals, and Owls were taking a run. But there were hockey fans in Columbus. So there, there were those fans as well that were there for the taking. So they tapped into them, but then they tapped into other audiences. But what I wanted to tell the story of when I made this movie, International Incidents, 
was the fact that there were teams there before the chill. The chill get all the headlines. But these guys, who were really good players, especially when you consider the era in which they played, were almost um, like just vaporizing into the cosmos. There was nothing to be found about the Checkers, the Golden Seals, or the Owls. Unless you talk to somebody of a certain age and they'd say, oh, yeah, I remember going in there. That was, that was fun. We had a great time. And that was kind of it. There were no stories or photos in bars or books or um, any kind of commemorative items or anything that uh, celebrated those teams. And I just thought, wow, you know, it's a major league city with an NHL team now. And I just think it would be unacceptable for all those guys who came through and really blazed the trail for pro hockey in Columbus to not be recognized in some capacity. Yeah, and that's that's something we talked about with the guys about about the chill because uh, and 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 it's uh, great that we can sort of even go further back because it does get into one of the one of the areas that we sort of obsess about sort of is is sort of that let's call it foundational history that either gets wallpapered over or just out and out forgotten usually because there isn't necessarily any economics immediately attached to it in modern terms, right? So uh, the NHL and and the and the Blue Jackets probably would generally say, okay, well, we can't sort of fully appropriate the Owls or the Golden Seals or the Checkers history of the chill for that matter, uh, either because we can't sort of access maybe the, uh, the logos or make money off of those kinds of things. Or frankly, maybe we just don't want to remember uh, what the leaner times, shall we say, or the minor leagueness of what Columbus was in the past, right? So there's probably a whole host of reasons, and I've frankly never talked to anybody in on the Blue Jackets staff or the NHL uh, specifically about this or generally about why not remember some of these teams because this is the foundation upon which Columbus ultimately became a major league city for the NHL. Yeah, and that was sort of my quest. I, I had gone to some um, Blue Jackets game and. Blue Jackets games and boy, their facility is fantastic. By the way, if you have not been the Nationwide Arena, and I know a couple of times they did, you know, historical things. I know a couple of the former players at one point got recognized as here are some of the original players from the long ago and the far away. And I went one night and it was celebrate Ohio Hockey History Night. So I like I wore my old jacket and stuff and tried to, you know, fit into things that I could have. I could no longer fit into, um, but uh, just do things like that, do commemorative activities like that. But they never really embraced the owls and the golden seals and the checkers as part of the family, I guess I would say. They were just sort of this forgotten history and, okay, we had the chill and the chill was really instrumental in getting the community arena built and then a few other things happened and, you know, boom, they got the Blue Jackets through well, yeah, absolutely. some, I mean, <laughs> some shrewd most, business dealings. Yeah, and they were the, probably the most immediate, you know, uh, uh, setup, I guess, for what ultimately became the Blue Jackets franchise. But I, I think what you're kind of getting at is that even despite there was a gap between their existence and the IHL's teams that we're going to get into even more in a minute. And, and that's all part of the tableau of history of hockey fans in Columbus, which, frankly, without any of those, uh, you could make the very strong argument that the Blue Jackets would not be a franchise as they are today in the NHL. Yeah, that's correct. And, and you know, Columbus, 
has grown since the checkers seals and and owls were there too it was not a small city to begin with because uh, one of the mantles at war for a long time was the largest city and metropolitan market in the usa to not have a major league sports franchise so you know there were there were people there there were consumer dollars there and there were hockey fans there now i'm not going to tell you that they have a sellout every every day but they did have some pretty hardcore fans and then if they were playing well and if they were marketed well which is another story um they'd get 4500 5500 into the barn and that was about as much as you could hold so there were people there who who craved the, the game and um were willing to to spend their tuesday nights in the old barn and um and, and watch some hockey well, describe to me, maybe through the lens of your childhood uh, and the Owls at the time, and maybe just as as also a scene setter for for the, th- the three incarnations that we'll get into, the, uh, I, I don't know, the, the overshadowing, I guess, of Columbus by both Cincinnati and Cleveland in their, I don't know, uh, inelegant attempts to be major league hockey cities themselves, largely through the WHA. Like, how much were you aware of that? in your fandom of the owls and or were you not aware and maybe in in as you sort of did your research for this uh, this film uh, how much did did that have an effect on perhaps why columbus wasn't one of the chosen markets either for the wha or for the longest time the nhl even yeah now i was mostly aware of the stingers in the wha uh, just because our family has some ties to the city of Cincinnati. My father went to school down here to finish up, and then my sister uh, eventually did too. But um, and plus, they were on TV, and and the Barons had kind of come and gone, and they 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 left with a whimper. So there, that was really never a presence. But one of the things that happened to Columbus in the I loved your word inelegant attempts of <laughs> getting an NHL uh, team was the fact that you were right smack dab in the middle of Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Indianapolis, and Cincinnati. And we were all very similar sized cities, probably Detroit a lot bigger at the time. And then that was that was it. So you could only fight for so many dollars. And then there was always the appeal that, you know, Cleveland or Cincinnati, they were a little bit of a, a bigger, more established already major league market. So maybe we'll go there. And um Columbus always got bypassed that way is what it seemed. And that was even true of other entertainment options with uh, concerts and art and things like that. So this sort of the, this Columbus has always sort of had this, uh, I don't know, this um, inferiority complex in some respects, right? Which I think is even more interesting. Well, there are a couple of different interesting tangents here. I mean, we'll get to the Golden Seals and and them uh, going to Cleveland to become the Barons for two years in the end of their, their natural life. We'll get to that in a second. But but in essence, you know, it's 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 really interesting the fact that the NHL is ultimately domiciled in Columbus after all of those attempts, both WHA and NHL elsewhere in the state of Ohio to finally land there. Yes, it, it's it's incredibly interesting. And uh, one factor that was always at work was. There was a very, there was, there is still currently a very strong faction of we don't want any money to go away from the beloved Ohio State Buckeyes. P- 
period. Um, there were efforts at all times and in all quarters trying to quell any march toward major league status if that were going to um, compete with or take funds away from the beloved Scarlet and Gray. So th- there were those there were those dealings at works in, in the back rooms and the undercurrents as well. So that was tough to overcome because unless you've lived in Columbus or maybe a place like Austin, Texas, it's hard to comprehend the power and money that sits with a university like that. Yeah, and I don't want to uh, obsess too much on the Blue Jackets because I do want to get into this IHL story. But um, did, did you did that change when the crew and Major League Soccer came about in '96, or 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 was that? I, I, I it feels to me like they kind of broke at least a couple of blocks off of that wall to maybe make the Blue Jackets entree via the NHL a little a little bit easier. Is that a fair assessment? I think that would be fair because you know Mr. Hunt was so. Um, respected in the professional sports business that I, I think that brought some credibility and it was like soccer. Okay. That doesn't really compete a whole lot, but I think it did give them some legs and some credibility and the city was growing. The market was growing and, um, that got some energy. And then Mr. Carmanos wanted to bring the whalers there, but the city defeated the the stadium levy at one point. So he was like, all right, we're going to Carolina. And then I, you know, Dave and, uh, and Craig would be your, your, your more knowledgeable people on how the blue jackets actually came. But, you know, I think it was a civic and, and uh, private business operation or, um, I don't want to say collusion that has negative <laughs> connotations, but uh, a, a joint effort to build the stadium. And Mr. McConnell then said, I will front the money for the team if you can get a stadium built. And then those two worked together, and that's how that came about. And Bettman was on board, and um, it, it, it kind of happened in spite of itself, really. Was, I, was living, so I was living in Detroit at the time, so I was in a major league uh, um, NHL market, having also lived in St. Louis. So I saw how it worked. I saw, I saw how good it could be as well. Well, let's let's dig into sort of the, the foundations then of this, because, you know, upon the backs of what we're going to talk about is really where uh, some of this uh, current history obviously lives and maybe should live. And, and we've already assessed the fact that it, sh- it it shouldn't be forgotten. And maybe a little show like this can be a little bit of an inspiration, perhaps, to because Lord knows the the owls logos, for example, and, and the it was is a great uh, it's probably a. You know, it's it's a really well done logo, and 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 that there's probably maybe there's money to be made there, but it's it's certainly at least something graphically that could could be remembered relatively easily. Maybe a little bit of a sense of what this IHL was back in the '70s, because I think that's maybe also a good primer for the three iterations that uh, that we're going to talk about. Not not just the Owls, but the the Seals and the uh, and the Checkers. Right. So yeah, and that that's a couple of the there are a couple of interesting factors too so the checkers came about that was the first franchise that came and that was in 1966 so think about 1966 that was still original six so you had your other minor leagues you had your um, ahl and your your western who were probably pretty much the developmental leagues and then you had the eastern and the uh, central and such who also had room for some really good players and there were multiple affiliations. So a lot of good players would 
would go to those leagues for whatever reason, whether it was um, contract ownership or you were a free agent. And oftentimes you could actually make more money in, a, in one league versus another. So, you know, I had one player who I interviewed saying I was just happy to get a job playing pro hockey. And that that told me a lot that there were so few jobs for so many guys trying to play the pro game. So one of the things that, that struck me was going through my research is at some point in the 10 seasons that they had the IHL teams there, there were 27 men who either um, who who'd played in the NHL either prior to their arrival in Columbus or thereafter. So there were some quality players and a lot, a lot more even played in the WHA. So there were some quality guys pulling on the sweater for those three teams. Well, so that's interesting. And we're recording this the week that we uh, dropped our, uh, our little uh, mini episode with uh, Dennis Murphy, the uh, the founder of, of the WHA. And, you know, there's no question that, uh, and I think it's really important that you circle around this, right? The, the great expansion wasn't until 1967, right? And the WHA shortly thereafter, right? So in many respects, and we've talked about this with a lot of people, the NHL was... I, behind way behind i guess where you know other sports had already started to either create a, a challenger league or or recognize that expansion had to happen much more quickly because it was a big fat country out there that was uh ready for new sports product the fact you know and i'm i was born in in 65 right and so i was unconscious frankly about all of this but at the time but you know, the fact that there were only six hockey franchises for the longest time since the 40s and, and until the late 60s really hadn't, you know, and then it, it, doubling in size. I mean, even then it was still but I, I, it's hard to believe. And the fact that the IHL and the WHA recognized that, I think, is uh, all part of the historical importance of, of this conversation, because, you know, there, there was absolutely probably more quality players, Canada included, that uh, could be populating more than just six teams on a top-tier professional league level. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, Columbus, these teams, and most of the IHL were made up, those teams were made up of primarily Canadians by about, I'd say, probably 90%. We had a few Americans and uh, not really even very many Europeans that played. So, yeah, they were just looking for a place to play. And they were affiliated, you know, these teams that I'm talking about, the um, they were affiliated with at different times with the Blackhawks and the Blues and the Bruins. So um, the Penguins even at one point. So, yeah, these guys were really, really good players who were worth paying to play. And, and also they were trying to traverse their way into the show by any means possible. Well, describe to me, based on what you do, uh, going back in time, right, the, 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 how the checkers kind of came to be in 66, because uh, you've already set the tone here, right, that there's, there's hockey marketness here. Uh, there's certainly a dearth of it uh, at the top tier pro level. Uh, and this IHL, uh, you know, I, I'm guessing had a fairly sort of rough and tumble sort of a definition to it in terms of its uh, the, the quality of play and then the ferocity of it and, and i guess maybe why columbus and, and how a columbus franchise gets finally domiciled after frankly being a, uh, written off as a college town for the longest time right indeed there was ferocity in that league as far as the play but the play was also good but there you did have to bring your uh 
your big boy game every night. But how the how the checkers came about is pretty interesting because um, I know you have uh, in the past like to talk about uh, a lot of the pro team, the major league teams, and all of that. Well, there were four or three brothers from Cleveland named Ray, Larry, and Jerry Schmelzer, who were an eyelash away from purchasing the Boston Celtics. And I've, you know, I found articles about that and everything. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And they said, no, we got back, we got backdoor dealed right at the very end and outbid by a little bit. So we lost, we didn't get it. And I was, you know, thinking, wow, that would be pretty nice to own, (laughs) own the Celtics now, which are multi-billion dollar franchise. But anyway, they just, yeah, you bet. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, pretty, pretty incredible. So um, word got out that they were looking to own a sports franchise. And so they and the IHL talked and they formed this, you know, entity and made a pitch and got accepted into the league and then started the team in 1966. And these guys were young. The Schmelzer guys were young to be taking this on. So um, it was pretty impressive. And one remained, you know, kind of like does the day-to-day GM, but they didn't really have hockey experience, and I don't think they really had uh, any sports acumen either. So they just built this thing from the ground up, but they, in a lot of ways, did it right. They spent a lot of money to put proper ice into the Fairgrounds Coliseum, which was the home arena, which still stands today. Um but was also, you know, when people refer to it as a barn, it literally is used as a barn a lot because they have the state fair there. They have bull riding and the, this giant event that's there every fall. The quarter horse convention was housed there. So um, it literally was a barn at times and needed a lot of uh, um, ice making upgrades and, and uh, an ice plant and all that. So they spent a ton of money just to get that thing started. And, um, but well, you know, why, why Columbus and why say the IHL, given that they were that close to kind of owning, you know, a, a top franchise and a top professional league in basketball? Did you get any sense yeah, of that? Yeah, they, they, um, in talking with Jerry, who just unfortunately passed away last summer, um, he just said that they, they wanted to be in, in the sports business in some capacity. And this was an opportunity for them to do that, as well as make additional business connections in another market since they were in Cleveland. And uh, that was one thing that he told me. He said, despite how the whole chapter of the checkers ownership ended up for us, we still made more connections there than we would have otherwise. And we still uh have business relationships and make money in Columbus to this day because of the checkers ownership. So um, I just think it was some shrewd thinking, I guess, on their part is, is what it was. They just wanted to own a team and saw this as a, as an opportunity in a city that didn't have that. Well, and, and really didn't have a challenger. Yeah. And maybe because they also recognize too, like we just described, right? There is uh, you know, probably too few professional top tier franchises in the NHL. And then maybe something, Something more was to was was to come, and obviously the great expansion and the WHA to follow. Whether they kind of knew that or had inklings, or or maybe recognized that perhaps their uh, a foray into the the top tier minor league might actually yield into something. But so the fairgrounds, right? We we kind of talked about this in the Coliseum. We we kind of talked about um, 
this a little bit with the with the the chill guys. But um, Mike, do I have this right? The, the debut of this team sort of didn't go over well because they wanted to bring in the. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. You're laughing. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah. You yeah it was. It was pretty dubious. It was. It was great on paper um, because they were able to get the Chicago Blackhawks uh, who to, to come play a game there, and that was when they had uh, Makita and uh, Bobby Hull. So that was the. You didn't get any bigger than that, right? And so they had to hurriedly, because of that quarter horse show that I mentioned, hurriedly build the ice. Well, they get there for the game, and the ice is not good. And some players refused, Blackhawks to even refuse to play because they found it to be too treacherous. So they had a little uh, confab and decided they they would play somewhat of a game with a running clock and uh, avoid injury for everybody. So yeah, that was how it started, and that fits, uh, that facility itself just never really was able to get out of its own way as far as being a credible hockey host building. Well, describe to me, though, it became somewhat, uh, I don't know, of an advantage and or semi-charming over time, but how many, uh, how many seasons did the checkers last, and, and is there any, you know, can you kind of describe kind of what those i guess it was four seasons were were like for the team because um obviously it didn't end well we could get to that in a second but uh it obviously tried to make a go out of it um i'm just curious as to what the dynamic of games there and or not only on the ice but the the fan experience any of that kind of stuff that you can kind of discern from your from your research for this film yeah sure um well they they right out of the gates they signed some good free agents and some, you know, pretty decent level minor league players. And then the, uh, the real coup was to lure Edward Mo Bartoli in as the playing coach. And he had been a long time EHL player and a very good one. And as well played in the IHL and he was a Sudbury guy and Mo was, um, just a huge personality, bombastic, um, loud, uh, loved to play, loved to play hard, and expected that of all of his teams, and just made it made it fun for the fans to to watch, and made it miserable for the opponents because it's just the way he played and the way he coached is, uh, you, you know, he he. Uh, his teams were always known for just being hard, hard in the corners, hard on the boards. And a couple of years in a row, they set IHL penalty minute records for the season, as well as individual games and such. So, I mean, they were a they were a tough bunch of cusses to go up against. How did the um, how did the market receive them? Uh, I'm guessing not all that tremendously well or enthusiastically, or maybe maybe they did and it just didn't. I, it, why it only lasted four seasons, I guess, is the question. They, uh, they did. It was enthusiastically embraced, actually, because you know uh, Columbus and Ohio being such heavy-duty football markets, they loved the they loved the aggression and the speed and the the fisticuffs and and all of that. But um, part and parcel with that, with the building itself, is they always had really terrible scheduling. Um, they would get kicked out of the building for, you know, the boat and um, 
fishing show and then what really hurt and this hurt everybody along the line even even up back to the chill back in the, when they reappeared in the 90s um was they would lose the building they would lose the building for the playoffs due to other events primarily you know, high school basketball well there was also if i remember correctly with our, our chill conversation also a bit of um I don't know, not necessarily just scheduling, but sort of, uh, I want to say undermining, perhaps, of, of dates, uh, given, I'm guessing, the, the long arm of Ohio State sports, too, even though this isn't necessarily a direct competition with Ohio State sports, but maybe it was, right, with with the basketball team being probably the number two sport in the, in the Ohio State sort of universe, and I'm guessing also hockey, too, on the collegiate level, Um is it fair to say that there was a little uh, sort of, uh, I, there's no better word I can think of, is undermining, perhaps, uh, in deference to Ohio State so as not to be competitive with? It wasn't necessarily that. The state did run the, the Coliseum. The Coliseum sat literally on the fairgrounds, and so it was managed by the state. Um, but they also had these long-standing dates, which, you know, um, is the bane of all minor league buildings, even still to this day. So when they would have the sport and travel show want to come in for two or three weeks, they got it because they, they were there, you know, in, in years prior. And then when the, the high school basketball association wanted to have their playoffs there at the same time that the hockey team would have been, well, they got it for a month or, or five weeks. You guys got to go find another home. Um, they also lost a lot of dates on weekends, which was also hard to grow um, a really strong following because they would have circus or bull riding or concerts or tractor pulls in that uh, in that building. So they were never none of the teams were ever like the primary um, tenant, I guess. They were they were never thought of as the, the A number one. You get priority tenant because these the other things, I think, just made more money and. Isn't that always what it's about? Well, I, I guess so. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, again, hockey, IHL, I mean, it's it's also, it seems to me, you know, kind of Columbus's, aside from the Clippers and baseball, and I, I don't remember off the top of my head if the CBA was a thing in the late 60s yet in Columbus either. It was kind of really their only pro, you know, go around aside from, again, that big dark shadow of Ohio State sports, which effectively in that town, right? Is yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it still was it, it, Ohio State. Whoever came in, you competed against Ohio State. If it was the fall, it was football. If it was, was um, the winter, it was basketball. And yeah, there you have it. Plus, Ohio and Columbus in particular is also very devoted high school sports following city too. High school basketball and wrestling and football were very big. So those are other competitive. Uh, ventures that that the hockey teams had to go up against so um there were a lot of things that 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 sort of conspired against their success in a lot of ways well i I guess the checkers also didn't do all that well on the ice either it wasn't a whole lot of reason aside from you know maybe curiosity or or maybe even the logo and the uh and the um i I, once again i i the owls uh, uh you know iconography is 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 uh lovely frankly and and charming the Columbus uh, 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 crest and the uh, and the coloring and the, is also uh, graphically very uh, very appealing. But I, I'm sure that's not a reason to go out to the ice and watch uh, Mo and the boys uh, uh, go at it, right? Uh, 
they didn't make the play. They only made the playoffs in the first round twice. And, you know, their, their, their general, uh, uh, they barely, they only finished over 500 one season. Right. So yeah, yeah, they were, they were not great as far as a team, but they were entertaining because of, uh, their um, bloodlust, I guess. Uh, there was a great line by by one of their general managers. The first year is um, in describing Mo Bartoli and how infamous he was in the league. When, uh, the GM said Mo was the only one booed at the All Star game. So it <laughs> uh, goes to tell you how uh, how um, universally the loathed they were as a team within the league. Um, that's so that's interesting. So then, but why, why I get the sense that the brothers kind of, for whatever reason, couldn't make a business go out of it too. I mean, for, for the, for all the excitement and, or the pugnaciousness, I guess, if that's a word of, of the team and then they're, um, it doesn't seem like it was enough to not only stand out as something just fun to go see and watch, but obviously the performance on the ice didn't help. Why, why, and how does it sort of uh, segue away because um, if I have this right, the team basically is done after the fourth season. It, it This is not a continuation when we get to these other two incarnations. It died. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. So in the third year, um, the beloved Mo Bartoli was traded, and he was still acting as player coach. And people got hacked off about that because he was the guy. He was... He was the voice. He was the face. He was a really, and he, and he was a very good player. He's still an all-star level player, and so that really made the the natives mad. So um, that had some impact. And then they brought in a, another coach who um, the, the last name might mean something to you for the fourth year, Mo Mantha, whose son eventually coached, coached the Columbus Chill later down the the way i believe that was the son and um that was their fourth year so the schmelzers had had enough of running this minor league team and so they had a deal in place at one point in the fourth season with an entity out of illinois i believe and the deal fell through at the end and it became this major litigation and then finally i think they just said enough we're gonna punt and they did not bring the deposit to the league for a fourth season or a fifth season. And then the, the league just withdrew the franchise. So the, so the team was dissolved. The Schmelzers got nothing. And the, um, the International Hockey League just reacquired the franchise. So uh, the Schmelzers kind of just, uh, they just retreated. What else, What do they do afterwards? I mean, they just wrote it off as a loss. Did they go else to, to other sports uh, uh, enterprises? Uh, I, I'm frankly they didn't. ignorant. No, they, they, uh, they went back to Cleveland and excelled in real estate and public relations ventures. So Interesting. that was, yeah. So yeah. Boston Celtics jilted at the altar. Four years <laughs> in Columbus in minor league hockey, and that's it. That's it. Let's so much, go. So much for tenacity in this franchise, huh? Right. Well, like I said, initially, they were pretty young guys. I just think maybe they were just trying it. And you even indicated that maybe if we try this and we get some experience and maybe we can have a shot at a major league franchise in, in this sport or another one. But, like, I don't think Jerry was even 30 by the time they were packing up and going home to Cleveland. 
Well, do I have this right? The other Jerry involved in this, the operations manager at the fairgrounds, Jerry Kaltenbach. Uh, I, 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 do I have this right? He basically kind of either out of auction or, or somehow furtively uh, uh, commandeered the, the equipment and, and that kind of stuff on the bet that maybe someday somebody would then again come back and try to hockey again? Uh, yeah, well, I believe they kept it all there because then for the second team, that's when the circus came to town in the form of uh, Charles O. Finley. All right. Well, let's let, let's talk about that then. Right. All right. So basically, <laughs> yes, let's. number one, it's important, I guess, in our little sort of silly genre to understand that this is not a continuation of the original franchise. This is really kind of a second incarnation of such because the team did stop in uh in 70 and then came was it 70 let me make sure i get my dates right here uh stopped in uh in uh at the end of the 1969 70 season and then didn't start again in their new incarnation as the golden seals in 1971 so there was a year without hockey at the ihl level so all right so let's talk about this we've had a number of conversations matter of fact our very first one with our pal mark gretschmiller was was a a great uh 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 sport in 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 exceeding to being our first ever episode way back when. oh wh- wow yeah i've watched his movie it's on, really there cool you go. on the golden yeah. Steels, and then we uh we had yeah. a um and steve courier on, a, on a, a subsequent episode later on um i am fascinated always have been with the golden seals nhl franchise part of the great expansion uh don't call them california don't call them oakland don't call them golden whatever I, who knows they're always they're different names and iterations but Charlie Finley, right, was part of that mix at some point in that franchises. So set that story up for me, because we all know about Charlie Finley, but why a minor league Golden Seals and why Columbus and, and why why would Charlie Finley even care about sort of Columbus to do this? Oh, so many uh, good questions there. Well, so the city was without a team, and because that deal all fell apart so late in 1970 – the IHL didn't feel like they could get another team up and running to take over that, that franchise. So they just kept it and absorbed it and had it on the market. Well, um, Charlie Finley, who did own the NHL Golden Seals at the time, decided he was going to buy it and use it as a developmental team for his uh, hockey empire. And boy, did that sound promising back in the day. You know, you have this major league owner who's building World Series champions and such and uh, owns another NHL team. This is this has got to be great, doesn't it? So what, what, so before you go any further, I, I'm assuming that the IHL was essentially a uh, the triple the A, I guess, or a triple A play for the NHL. And I'm also guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, and I don't mean to divert you here, that there might have been some, I don't know, financial advantage here because here we had a dormant i guess a dormant franchise in the ihl and i guess they were i would say priced to move but um but but were attractive financially but that's just my guess yeah they he uh he got a good a good deal on the the seals to be sure because he was just buying them directly from the league um but no they were not necessarily and that's you know uh, a discussion that some people would like to have is the ihl was probably not actual triple a i would it was probably triple a minus or double a plus if you were um in 
really on the way to go up to the NHL, you're either going to be playing probably in the American Hockey League or the Western League. So okay, that that helps frame it a little bit better. Yeah, still, but you know, some of those teams, uh, as as I mentioned earlier in the the conversation, some of those teams didn't always have roster spots for everybody that they owned. So they would say, okay, you you go to Columbus and had some pretty darn good players. In fact, a lot of the the players, despite their absolute abysmal futility, um, quite a few guys did make it to the uh, to the NHL in some capacity with that Golden Seals operation. So, yeah, the circus came to town in 1971 with uh, Charlie leading the parade. And the idea was what? I need a minor league franchise to stock and or uh, have to either send players down and or develop talent to bring yeah. up? Yeah, that was that was it. They, uh, they also operated an op- uh, a team in Salt Lake, I believe. The Golden Eagles. I know they did it at least for, for one season, and so they were kind of the the Triple A um, call up squad. So they did need to to shelve some players elsewhere, and um, so they would they would send them to Columbus. And you know they brought in a, a former NHL player to be the coach, a young energetic guy, Terry Gray, and there were all kinds of hopes. But man, they were historically bad historically bad well it was also it was also uh uh loaded with with i guess you would call them sort of raw prospects and young players right so does it doesn't seem like there were any quote-unquote stars or any real commitment perhaps to being necessarily competitive because i think it's also important to remember that the the nhl <clears throat> seals were also relatively young as well right this is an expansion franchise circa 67 right so this was not a team that had been around for a long time, and and I, but I guess Finley was also kind of in a hurry, right? He wanted to make things happen and relatively fast for the pro team, the top tier team versus. I don't know. I'm just trying to get a sense of the dynamic. Yeah, well, because you know the the, the NHL Golden Seals weren't terribly successful themselves, and so you kind of hit the nail on the head there with the young players. Is the the IHL Seals were very young. Um, but it didn't seem like there was a real plan anywhere. So they just, they, they brought these guys in and said that they were going to have this really good competitive team while well, they started out like one and 19 and were just abysmal. And then you have the, uh, the general manager saying, well, it looks like we underestimated the strength of this league. Well, you didn't really do your homework, did you? So <laughs> not real uh, a whole lot of kudos for the scouting department. So they were just sort of left to uh, to be manhandled by a lot of these other veteran teams and, and better stocked teams. Yeah, and uh, the fans kind of responded accordingly, right? I, I, I think they only really had in 71, I guess, in se- uh, only one crowd over 2,000. Fans and a lot and a bunch Bad. that were even less than a thousand. Bad in attendance, and, and they also didn't. They also didn't market it well. Um, they didn't. They didn't. You know, like any other team there, they didn't get good dates, but they didn't market it well. And another thing with Columbus is we they had the Buckeyes, man, and, and you know we can at least see some measure of winning if we go watch a Buckeye basketball game or football game. But this is this is not. It's not fun to see your squad get slaughtered, you know, seven to one every night on a 
cold Tuesday in January. So a lot of that was happening, but a, a lot of, um, an- another major factor was that he didn't invest in that team in well, particular. Well, Charlie Finley, you know, let's be honest, right? Correct. But, you know, you kind of think like, well, you know, he did invest on the, on the athletics and they did quite well and he was willing to spend money there. But um, I had one former player, which I didn't get to fit into the movie, tell us that they were um, so bereft that they went on a road trip and had to borrow sticks from the opposing team and go to the sporting goods school, sporting goods store in town and purchase their own sticks just to have sticks to play with on this road trip. That their equipment was that um, poor and uh, ill, <laughs> uh, ill prepared, I guess. Well, so do I have that this was right? what they were living with. Do I have this right that even after that sort of first season with Terry Gray at the helm, 15 and 55 with two ties, right? So what is that? That's barely, I'd say that's like two, 220 something in terms of winning percentage. Um, they brought back Mo, Mo, Mo Bartoli uh, for the next season. Uh, kind of maybe, I don't know, bring back some of that, I don't know, that checkers magic. <laughs> checkers magic the fire and he was more now just he was just the uh the coach and general manager and he was beloved in columbus and so they thought well maybe we'll we'll, we'll get mo back and they brought uh, a guy named bill bond in who had played for the checkers a real steady big defenseman and he, he, i think he had been maybe in des moines or something and he wanted to get back to columbus so mo brought him back to Columbus and made him the captain and everything and so you're thinking with these changes things are going to get better right well, no, they got worse, historically worse, if you can believe it. And they ended up in the 72-73 season with 62 losses. And that record is into perpetuity when the, uh, when the league folded in 2001. Yeah, it, it's one of the more futile uh, uh, seasons, I guess, in, in, uh, I guess in, I don't know, minor league hockey or pro hockey generally, right? A, a, 10 wins out of a 74-game season. That's uh, 62 losses and two ties. Uh, I uh, I just, I can't imagine. Now, the logo, by the, I, I come back to the iconography and the logos. I, I'm The Seals stuff was cool, too. Uh, so in the graphic design department, not another, uh, a, 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 another good uh, kind of standout look, I think, is cool. I just... It just had to be a, just a futile effort to be a fan and or a player and or a coach or anybody associated with this team for two years. Yeah, it did. I mean, your your final line was 10, 62, and 2 with a winning percentage of 1.49. Um, and they were outscored by uh, like 216 goals, I think, or something like that. Um, just totally abysmal. Um, and Bill Bond, who was the captain of that team, he told me, he said, if I would have known it was going to be like that, I would have never gone. So that was, <laughs> that and, was pretty telling. And would you, would you describe basically the players that you interviewed or knew about sort of as, as part of the, at least this, these two years as being, uh, obviously it seems to be sort of on the young side and more developmental side, but, um, I'm guessing all of these players and, and obviously the, a lot of them didn't have a choice in many respects, um, we're kind of hoping to get a look upstairs at at the uh, at the Oakland franchise, right? Versus uh, sort of uh, making a go out of it as a full time IHL, you know, rock'em sock'em player. 
Yeah, that would have been hard to be a veteran player playing in that. And if you were a younger guy, at least you could say, well, this isn't my my last stop, my last stand. I am, I can keep pushing. But um, I forget which season of what it was, 71 or 72, but one of the players, and it's, it's in the movie where he's quoted as saying, the best thing that ever happened to me was I broke my nose or broke my arm that season and, <laughs> and I was out for the season. It was like that was the attitude because it was just so difficult to get through with that chronic losing. So how, how does how does Finley get out of this then? And, and do you have any ideas to sort of like why? I'm trying to remember where the Golden Seals NHL club was at this time. He was probably trying to get out for a bunch of different reasons that had maybe nothing specifically to do with Columbus per se, or maybe it did. I don't know. Right. I think he was just losing interest in hockey in general and was trying to invest more in the Oakland athletics. You know, he did put some good money into them and um, they almost kind of uh, succeeded in spite of him. But he did spend money with them. And that was what the new owner, the the Columbus Owls owner, said was he was asked when – so he just purchased the franchise from uh, from Finley, a guy by the name of Al Saville, and he was asked um, what he would do differently, and uh, he said, "Get basically get get better players and spend more money." So that was his yeah, plan and, of action and, from the start. And I guess treat it like like a competitive entity because the IHL obviously was you know at certain level was was competitive in the in the in the. Uh in the cities that it played in. Well, how does this transaction uh, come to be? Like, how does how does Seville get uh, knowledge of it? Uh, what's his background? And, and you know, does is this a Finley finding Seville kind of thing? Is this an IHL led process? How does this how does this sort of transaction uh, occur? I'm just curious as to like how the how the team goes from one uh, lamentable and uh, 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 looking to get rid of owner to uh, to another. Yeah, so uh, Finley had just lost interest and wanted to get out of the the hockey business in general, and so he put the team up for sale. And I believe um, Bill Began, who was the commissioner of the IHL, somewhat facilitated the sale to Al Saville, who was a very successful mortgage broker executive and had made a lot of money in that industry. Um, but he was also a very competitive man he had owned a minor league football team in indianapolis in the late 60s in the um oh gosh what was the continental league i believe yes yeah yeah and actually uh won the championship one year so um he was a competitive guy and he was a wealthy guy and he had a plan and a vision and he didn't like to lose yeah, I, I think I have this right. If Saville, and I apologize for uh, uh, pronouncing his name incorrectly earlier, but Saville, um, if I have this right, I think even made an entreaty at one point to uh, O.J. Simpson when he was having a contractual disagreement with the Buffalo Bills. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. pretty wild. Yeah, apparently to play for, I guess, that team uh, in Indianapolis, was it? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, it was Indianapolis. It but, was the uh, Indianapolis Capitals. There you go. And um, and OJ is still with us. I, I don't know if it's uh, an appropriate uh, outreach to to ask him about that little blip in his career. But um, yeah, I digress. Um, but yeah, it does give a sense that at least on a minor league level, he wanted to be somewhat competitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and, and you could just see just in, in the research that he was a competitive guy in everything he did. So he um, spent money. He spent money on the facility, and he got a really good working agreement, um, an affiliation with the St. Louis Blues, and was able to bring in some nice players from from their camp and um, had a pretty darn good team for putting it together in the course of, um, you know, three months. And that was a good team in 73-74, actually. Um, he also, though, went on to, I, I know we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves on the Alice. Alice was uh, the 73 to 78. But this is also around the time, if I'm not mistaken, Saville also tried to get involved and or was a part owner of the Pittsburgh Penguins at, in the NHL, too, right? Yeah, he sure was. He sure was. I believe it was uh, the last two years of the Columbus Owls. He also owned, was a part owner of the Pittsburgh Penguins in the NHL and then used Columbus as an affiliate. Got it. Okay, so there was a relationship. That's what I was trying to get to. So uh, the so in essence, the Owls were now again, Owls again have fantastic graphic imagery so uh, it, when we post this episode and on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com we will we'll have a whole bunch of these images and obviously in our social media feeds which most of our listeners have probably seen and maybe the reason why they're listening to this episode i hope um so uh, the owls are feel to me like okay the first the checkers you know kind of came and went it, it died uh, an ugly death and then finley for whatever he was trying to do sort of di- didn't make a go out of it. It seems to me like like Saville really kind of ma- made a, a serious go at it with this team as in the incarnation as the Owls in terms of competitiveness and play and commitment and spending of money and even an affiliation with a team that he even had a part ownership uh, stake in with the NHL. Yes, he wanted to win. He wanted to win, whether it was at the minor league level or the major league level. And a lot of the people that I interviewed who played for him or worked in the front office. That was what they said. They said he wanted to win and he also treated us well and he got us anything we needed to help us be better and help us win. That was never a question. He he treated us well. And a few of the guys said, you know, you could never ask for a better owner than Mr. Sable. And he would personally have them out to his house for Christmas parties and get them gifts and all of that. And, and, you know, he wanted them to do well because he wanted to do well. And I think it was all just simpatico. And he was, like I said, a competitive guy. He had been that way in business and he was in that way in his sports ownership too. And that also um, came to bear in his dealings with the um, state and the Fairgrounds Coliseum. He would not back down. Well, so describe that to me. Um, I, you know, I'm guessing this is just part of being an owner of a Columbus team and the IHL, I guess I'm always curious as to why the IHL generally and why not spend more time and energy uh, with the, the Penguins and the NHL. But describe again, I think it's important to understand the the relationship between the various teams, inclusive of the Owls, and we also hinted at the Chill, and this Fairgrounds Coliseum facility. Maybe a moment or two about the facility itself, right? Because it... Uh, I don't know if it's charming, but it certainly was uh, long in the tooth even then, I guess. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think it's uh, 102 years old now or something like that. And they're still using it and still playing hockey in there at different levels. But, um, you know, it was just 
it was just a state-run operation, and they weren't especially um, like proactive, forward-thinking. Things wouldn't get done, and Savile would go in there and, as a businessman, as a business owner, and a successful one, and just say, "Hey, this isn't cutting it. We need to do this, this, and this." And then they wouldn't react or respond. So he would get in disputes with them and say he wasn't going to pay the rent for the month and just really try to force their hand and they just wouldn't really um play ball they just they liked it the way they liked it and they had it their way and that was the way they did did things and it was exceptionally frustrating for all three ownership groups not so much as finley but i know the schmelzers had that uh frustration and um Savile, he just he did not hold back in in laying into them at any given uh, given situation. It feels to me though that uh, there do I have this do, is this feeling correct that there was more of a marketing push here and more of a, an outlay of of effort to to sort of draw attention to the team and and get people to come and the logo and all that stuff. Yeah, there was. He like I, I had mentioned that he he spent money. He spent money marketing. He spent money in outreach. And he also had some really popular players. Um, you know, Mo, Mo Bartoli came back, and he was the coach and general yeah, manager for a few years. What, what is, yeah, Mo was the man. What is it about Mo? What is it about him? Um, I think Mo kind of figured out that uh, he could be a big fish in a in a medium sized pond uh, pond, and uh, and there was just an affection for him in Columbus because of the way he carried himself, the way he coached, the way he played, you know, people actually saw him him play. He wouldn't back down to anybody and he played hard and he was always a good quote. I think he was very good with the media and he won, you know, he won to some degree, not, not a lot, but he, he could, he could get you a pretty good team and they were always fun teams to, to watch, but then he also had this incredible um, pipeline to really good players from his hometown of Sudbury, Ontario. Yeah, if you look at like the rosters, he, he's sounds he's, like he was kind of like the face of hockey in the in the in the city, and and it's, it's just ironic because he was also he was part of the one of the worst teams ever in Columbus uh, minor league franchise history prior to that. So yeah, yeah, he was the coach of the the most dubious uh, team ever as far as uh, losses go. Yeah. But he had proved himself a little bit with the checkers and with other teams uh, as being pretty favorable. And uh, I don't know, people just liked him. And they, they still to this day refer to him as the godfather of Columbus hockey. So that's a pretty neat claim. Pretty good moniker to wear. So describe to me, I mean, we're sort of hinting at it with the uh, the, the uh, always uh, friction-filled relationship with the Fairgrounds Coliseum folks. Um how, despite all of that uh, and the alliance with the Pittsburgh uh, Penguins, which I know obviously it was around the time when uh, the infamous sort of padlocking by the IRS of the, I, it seems to me that his involvement with the Penguins around that time sort of kept that franchise uh, viable for, for its, for the time he was part of it, even though it was money losing. What was, what was the straw that kind of broke uh, the, the, his camel's back, so to speak? I, at what point does the does the enterprise in Columbus kind of start to sort of waver and, and, and his conviction in this team waver too? Yeah, well, his 
after year three, towards the end of that year, he was hinting, not even hinting, he was actually saying in the media that this is probably going to be our last year unless things change. And a lot of that was he was fed up with dealing with the fairgrounds Coliseum. He also didn't see the um, business community embracing them like he thought they could and should um, and just felt like they weren't being weren't being treated like the way he thought that they could be treated as far as a, a relatively decent popular team in a city of that size. And so he was just trying to push the envelope a little bit. But they had built a pretty good fan following. And so with with that veiled threat or whatever, the Booster Club got to work and really started to secure season tickets and, and wanted to bring the team back and, and, and assure that. So he... He acquiesced and did bring them back for the fourth season, but uh, it became just, it's in the movie, it just became an absolutely untenable relationship with the Fairgrounds Coliseum management, and he just had had enough. Well, how early did he start to, if you will, threaten to go to another city? Year three, toward the end, probably about two-thirds of the year, way through the year, he had a press conference and made that proclamation. And so that got people's attention. And he met with civic leaders and the mayor and all that and, and got some, um, I guess, positive momentum and positive press and maybe even some uh, financial assistance along the way from that and did come back for a fourth season. But I just think he had lost so much money over the course of his three years that he he was also quoted as saying, I don't want to make money, but breaking even wouldn't be bad, you know. And he had, he professed that he had lost like $200,000. And just, you know, I don't know if you've ever run a business, but just because you have it doesn't mean you, you want to lose it. So, well, um, where, where did he want to go? He had talked about possibly relocating to Grand Rapids initially, which is where they did end up. Um, but then after the 76, 77 season, they, they did a very bizarre thing when the Dayton Gems were no longer there and they moved to Dayton for like, I'm talking maybe three or four weeks. And then they relocated to Grand Rapids and stayed in Grand Rapids for a number of years under his ownership. Well, it it, uh, it it sounds like a real sort of shot in the gut if you were uh, one of the two to 3,000 or so fans rattling around the, the fairgrounds arena, um, you know, to sort of see yet now the third attempt at, at, at a minor league franchise to kind of stick. It, I, I, you know, it also feels to me, too, that that, again, the the ownership of the arena, I mean, it doesn't help matters, right? Because I, I get the sense that uh, the while the team did perform pretty well and made the playoffs a bunch of times, it was always those dates. It, it seemed like they had to kind of, every spring, had to sort of acquiesce to the uh, previously arranged. I mean, they could never catch a break, you know, come playoff time, and they were had to scramble. And it just had to be maddening to run a franchise that way, especially given the more important games at the near the end of the season. Yeah, it was, you know, for, for Mr. Savile himself, you know, and actually investing his own money in the Coliseum in, in different ways and, and really trying to bring attention to the team and, and, and 
building a winner and bringing in interesting personalities. And, you know, they started to get pretty hot there in the playoffs in 76, 77. Well, they had to play the bulk of their playoff series in Toledo and ended up losing a game seven, which would have should have, which would have been a, a home game in Toledo. And then that was the, that was the end of it. And I think that was just the last straw of, gosh, I'm not, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. I've, I've tried and I've done my best, but they don't want to work with us. So I'm going to move it on down the line. And I guess this is also interesting. We mentioned this before, uh, and maybe this is a good coda to the, to the story. The, you know, again, a reminder that this is around the same time that uh, the Crusaders were in, uh, excuse me, the Barons, I apologize. The Crusaders were the earlier WHA incarnation, right? That was part of the decade. But also the the Barons and the NHL, the relocated Golden Seals for two seasons. And the Stingers in the, you know, flailing around the WHA as well, uh, to, to their credit, trying to hang on uh, admirably to be hopefully one of the chosen teams to kind of make that merger to the NHL, which they ultimately didn't. I, it doesn't seem to me that Ohio as a state uh, for hockey uh, was uh, not fertile. It seems like it was absolutely capable and possible. And certainly, Lord knows how many attempts were being tried. But I guess you put this against the backdrop of this Columbus story. It just, in the 70s were a turbulent time, maybe the best of times and the simultaneous worst of times to be a hockey fan in the state of Ohio professionally. Yeah, and anywhere in the USA, the you know the latter part, let's say of the the seventies, the the economics weren't good for anybody, <laughs> unless you were unless you were just independently wealthy. I mean, there were there were all the energy shortages and the the um, high inflation and the high interest rates and all of that. So it was it was tough. It was also tough to to spend money on entertainment like that. Um, but but I really think if Mr. Saville would have given it another year or two or would have been able to get a little bit of cooperation from the management of the arena, they would have stayed around because they, they really had some popular players. There was a guy named Steve Lyon who was a fan favorite, and I've been in touch with. He lives up in Ontario now, but you know he had the, the wild man afro and, and, and big beard and, and you know played with, with tenacity and uh, just was, was a lot of fun. And then um, while Wild Willie Trognitz played for, for the team and even uh, Bill Goldie Goldthorpe was invited to training camp. So the, the fans were dreaming of a, of a team with um, Goldie and Wild Willie on it in there in 1976, 77. But they, they didn't keep Goldthorpe, but um, just, you know, brought in some interesting players, some fan favorites, some very, some very skilled players along the way. In fact, there was a, a pretty neat thing that the Owls had in um, 74, 75. They were the first professional team to ever have a line comprised strictly of um, collegiate American-born players, and they called it the BC line because all three of them had played together at Boston College. So that uh, that made a hockey news headline. So it was uh, a lot of a lot of interesting factoids and, and players came through. Um, but the the flint and stick never just struck to really to really build the fire. 
Well, Trognitz is an interesting way to maybe sort of a, a, a cul-de-sac this conversation because he uh, he uh, infamous right in I oh, yeah. three <laughs> once the team relocated. I, you want to maybe talk about sort of that because he he got the lifetime ban from the IHL. That that's how bad it was. Yeah, he, he got did. Incarnated strangely. Yes, he, he he did. Well, what was interesting is he was playing for Toledo for the Toledo Gold Diggers, um, one of the greatest names of a team ever um on the murder ink line so you know with uh with mahood and um um uh, tanardini and then he was part of a trade and he came over from the gold diggers already under suspension for attacking a referee so that was his start in columbus um coming with that dubious dubious honor um but he was actually a pretty decent player and then he did get a shot in the uh, the WHA later in his in his yeah, career. Yeah, he was he was suspended for life from the IHL. I guess it was a game against the uh, the Port Huron Flags, and uh, it it um, I, I don't know if it was the inspiration for uh, some of the scenes in Slapshot, but that movie was also out around that time, right? So, in many respects, it it almost was a boon to his sort of. Uh, his career in some respects by getting that ban because I Lord knows the stingers needed some help on the, uh, on the goon side of things. And, and it gave him another sort of a, a breath of life in, in, in another league. And I, strangely <laughs> a call up because it was effectively a, a direct competitor to the NHL at the time. I, it's just it, the craziness of uh, these, these teams, these, these the, if minor league hockey, uh, certainly slap shot around that time encapsulate some of it. Let me ask you sort of maybe this sort of uh, roundup question, and then I'll let you promote. Um, you're the kid now, sort of following this team, the Owls. How do you how do you take their leaving? How do you how do you discern and find out? And what are you told about them leaving? Like how did how is it described to you? How do you how do you figure this out? And uh, do you feel kind of abandoned the fact that they they're leaving town uh, because of it? Oh, yeah. Well, like I said, um, I think earlier in our conversation is I was you know, a junkie. I read every article and box score and followed them, listened to them on the radio and was really um, part of their part of their backers. You know, I, I, I loved that team. I love that team as much as I liked any of the other major league teams that I followed at the time. And and a lot of it was because of the their presence and, and the interesting players and and their friendliness and approachability and, and all of that. So um, I was devastated. I really was. I, I forget. I was like 12 or something, I think, when they split. And it really, really hurt because it was my favorite sport. It was my favorite thing to do. And now they were gone. And I had invested in that emotionally. And they were just gone. So, you know, I followed it in the papers and hoped that maybe – they would come back or another team would come back in the ensuing years and they didn't. And so I just, um, I guess I turned my, my interest to uh, local college hockey there at Ohio state and then played some and, uh, then followed the NHL as much as you could on TV and, you know, got the hockey digest or something. But, uh, yeah, it hurt. I, uh, I was really pretty, crestfallen over the whole thing did did you um 
You didn't even transfer allegiances to that of the Stingers or uh, or even uh, when they went to other cities like uh, Dayton and, and Grand Rapids? You kind of just sort of, when they left Columbus, they left you? Yeah, that was kind of how it felt. I think I might have followed Grand Rapids a little bit, but you know, you got to remember, they didn't really post IHL scores in the Columbus Dispatch when <laughs> when, when the team was in Grand Rapids. So um I knew they were there, and I knew some of the guys went, so I, I wanted them to do well. And I did to follow the uh, Stingers as much as I could because they were on television some on a cable station out of Cincinnati that I watched. So, you know, I, I did like that, and I loved watching the NHL when they were on the, the uh, weekend games. But it just sort of became another hockey void there in central Ohio. Okay, and maybe this will be the last question, then I'll let you promise. I promise. Um, so then, both as you lived through it and now as you look back in retrospect through this film, uh, why, I think I know some of the answers, but why such a long gap then between the demise of the Owls, uh, the return, the, the ballsy return, shall we say, of what became the, the chill, um, and then obviously the, the lineage into NHL. Why that big gap, do you think, in hockey in Columbus? Yeah, that's... <sighs> I think greater minds than mine have struggled with that. One thing that seemed to be pretty evident was word got out that the Fairgrounds Coliseum was difficult to deal with. And it was a one-way street. They did it their way, and you just sort of had to to uh, follow suit and fall in line. Um, I believe that there was also the fact that there wasn't really another alternative place to play. They, were, you know, they built a conference center at one point, and there was talk of something going in there. But to get a deal done there, I think, was difficult, and you had to build a whole ice uh, ice plant and everything. And that's a major investment, especially for, for a minor league team. So I don't know. I, I, I you know, kind of moved on. You know, I, I graduated high school and went on to college and you know, followed hockey there and stuff, too. But um, – I was elated when the chill did come because I thought Columbus was ready for it. And I was uh, excited for them to, uh, to rejuvenate the hockey market there in Columbus. But just as they were coming in, I was uh, moving away. So um, I don't know. I just think that it was, uh, it was an amalgam of things. I also think that people saw three, three teams tried three different types of ownership groups tried, and it didn't really, take off so um we're not going to do it either sort of seemed to be the the answer i guess well yeah and you also got on with your life which is understandable too but uh, but uh, it was it must have been a part of you that uh was enthusiastic about the chill and how quickly they kind of took uh took not only the the city by storm but also uh got a lot of national accolades for their uh, promotional prowess and stuff i mean they you know maybe the best of a bad situation there too right and obviously we see that, that ultimately became yeah, I loved it. When I would come back for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, I'd uh, grab some friends and we'd go and watch that brand of hockey and drink a beer and, and enjoy it. Still back in the same barn and uh, and, <laughs> and get the get the feels all over again. And uh, um, they did. They, they, they got pretty famous, actually. And it made me proud. Uh, and did you did you transfer your hockey fandom to the Blue Jackets once they finally came, or or do you not have as much of a, an, an affinity for for them? 
Yeah, you know, uh, there's that's kind of a complex answer, but yes, to the for the most part, yeah, because that was one of my dreams of as a child was boy, I can't even imagine how great would that be to have my hometown have an NHL team, and sure enough, it actually came true, and I never thought it would, but um, I had developed a real affection for the St. Louis Blues, and had also had the opportunity to live out in St. Louis and go to Blues games when um, Brett Hull and Brendan Shanahan and Grant Fuhrer and Wayne Gretzky, those guys played for the team. So that really solidified my um, liking of that squad. And so when Columbus did um, get the Blue Jackets and they, they did the divisions, they, they put the Blues and the Blue Jackets in the same division. And that made for some tough love. That was a difficult decision. So um, it's kind of a 1A, 1B type of feeling, I think. Well, the, the, the reason why I asked it, because this, this leads into uh, promoting the film, because, again, I circle back to the history of Columbus and in, in, in pro hockey, right, is absolutely uh, enmeshed in whether we like it or not or whether the team likes it or not with the Blue Jackets franchise. And I wonder with the arrival of this film and your promotion of it and and all that other stuff. And frankly, you're not the only person in the Columbus area who remembers any of these three teams, I'm sure, or four teams that you throw the chill in. Um, when, where and how does that, I don't know, respect or at least memory and or just acknowledgement possibly come? Because I would suggest it's not unimportant. Uh, well, hopefully now, because when we actually premiered the film live in January, we went to uh, a theater there in Grandview, Ohio, outside of uh, Columbus, very close to downtown. And we had back-to-back sellouts. We had uh, 11, 11 former players come in from those teams um, from as far away as Winnipeg and Florida and Ontario. And they brought their families, and we had the two sellouts, and the Hockey Hall of Fame was even in attendance, and they brought some of the IHL um, hardware, which was a lot of fun. And I think it really let a lot of people relive yesteryear, but also some of the families uh, came up to me afterwards, uh, one, one particular uh, young man came up to me said Eric that was awesome I never got to see my dad play now I did that really was something for me to, to get to see him play um, when we had used some of that that archival footage and stuff and so now I think it is it has uh, it's I think created a new uh, a new found interest in these teams that, that languished and were, were forgotten for so long and we're bringing them back, and I, and you know, I've, I've built a pretty good following on um, our Facebook page, and um, we're getting ready to release the film online here next month. And so I think we're bringing back the, bringing back the ghosts. And um, to to the Blue Jackets, they were actually kind enough. The premiere weekend, uh, our group went to a, a Blue Jackets game, and they got a hold of me and wanted to run the trailer during a timeout. And they did that and interviewed me, and I took two of the former checkers down with me, and the entire place, sold out, a sold-out crowd on a Saturday night, gave them a standing ovation, and they were just over the moon. 
which made it all worthwhile. So that's that is a that's a happy ending, I guess, to a story. Maybe maybe the beginnings of more because we have we've had many chats about teams, various sports and leagues and stuff where past histories have either been blatantly forgotten or uh, you know uh, just uh, blithely discarded or you know uh, other sometimes even appropriated without sort of understanding sort of the background and or acknowledging sort of where that original logo or team name came from. They just sort of took it and moved on with it, right? So this this feels to me like a little bit of acknowledgement. And, you know, I, I'm sure the NHL has its, again, issues and stuff, but I think you've, you've, uh, you, you've, you've hit a, 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 a nice uh, vein here. And it would seem to me that there's maybe some more to come in terms of memories and logos and and all that kind of stuff um not just because of this film but because of the memories that this film is stirring up yeah and it has it's it's stirred up some wistfulness with uh people um it's fun for the people who got to go see the games and remember that or going with their family or their their spouse or or whatnot and then it's also um regenerated an enthusiasm for the players families that I, I, a few of them brought their families and i mentioned steve lyon he brought his two sons they never got to see their dad play and you know we hung out with them at you know one evening after the show and you know they were just they were just such nice nice young men and they had they i mean i asked them i said did you know that your dad was kind of the man they're like yeah we kind of knew but like this really <laughs> this really kind of showed us this 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 is what he was so um people get to see their their fathers or grandfathers or uncles or whomever in some capacity in their playing days All right, let's put a, uh, a push pin in this conversation and uh, and remind you, Columbus hockey fans, if you were a fan of the Chill, if you are a fan of the Columbus Blue Jackets, uh, you will, and or if you even remember any of these teams we talked about this week, the Checkers, the Golden Seals, or the Owls, all of the IHL, uh, you will absolutely love the upcoming documentary that uh, Eric has put together uh, it is called International Incidents. It debuts on October 15th on Vimeo. As uh, Eric has said, it is 80 minutes of old-time hockey gold, and uh, you will not be disappointed. We loved it, and uh, you will too. Uh, you can follow all of the uh, uh, the exploits uh, uh, in the days leading up to the debut of this film, get specifics on how to get it, how, how to find it, how much it'll cost, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, no live events, unfortunately, uh, in the interim, but uh, it will be debuting online, and I know a lot of people will be excited about it. You can follow Eric on Twitter at eWeltner. That's E-W-E-L-T-N-E-R, eWeltner, at eWeltner. On Twitter, you can also follow International Incidents on uh, Facebook. There's a Facebook page there, and either of those two places, uh, you'll be able to find all of the latest information uh, about the film. I think he's also on IMDb as well for the for the film uh but just keep tabs on any of those uh uh, places uh but again october 15th on vimeo 
uh, international incidents. Uh, you will enjoy it. Please seek it out. Uh, it is just a blast. And uh, we wish Eric uh, well with it. And I hope, God forbid, the uh, Blue Jackets will uh, take some notice uh, of this film and uh, do the right things and do a little bit more uh, to the extent that they've done anything. Uh, to commemorate uh, not only these three great teams of the IHL, but the chill, of course, uh, as we uh, talked about in our episode 169 a few months back. Uh, great logos, great uh, imagery, great memories, uh, and frankly, a foundational history that uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets and the NHL uh, need to uh, bow humbly uh, in the general direction of to uh, thank, frankly, for uh, the existence today of one of the NHL's uh, fun franchises in the Blue Jackets. So uh, thank you, Columbus. I think we've uh, done you proud these last couple of weeks. And uh, we wish you and the Blue Jackets well. And remember, knock on their doors early and often to uh, get those checkers and golden seals and owls and even chill memories uh, more uh, regularly uh, installed into uh, what I hope is a, is a an actual in-person season uh, coming up as the, uh, the fall and winter perhaps uh, uh, lead us uh, to hopefully once again. Uh, we want to thank, uh, of course, all of our uh, great sponsors, uh, our new pals at 417helmets.com. Thank you, Judd. Uh, we want to thank our pal Jerry Payne, of course, who uh, painstakingly, hint, hint, wink, wink, puts all of our pieces together. Thank you, sir, for your editing and production talents. Jerry Payne, audio excellence, of course. And uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at Good Seats Still. You can follow us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Yes, there's a Facebook page devoted to us, too, at Good Seats Still Available. I think is the hashtag or something, whatever. Just search it up. You'll find it. And, uh, of course, our website, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's where you can send us email or directly at hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Uh, you could sign up for our email newsletter there. And um, I don't know, just to download all of our episodes, if you want. We've got uh, uh, scores and scores of them. We're getting close to 200 now, and uh, it's been almost uh, three and a half years worth of stuff. And uh, we're we're not done yet for sure. So we thank you for uh, checking all of those things out, following us where you can. And of course, please, wherever you can, Apple or elsewhere. How about a, uh, a nice five-star rating and uh, a nice little, uh, you know, a couple of words of thanks and uh, thumbs up and what you like about the show. You can always use a few good reviews. That uh, helps a lot of people out there, maybe like you, uh, to find and discover this show uh, for themselves. We thank you in advance for doing that. And we thank you in advance for uh, hanging in there with us. And we'll uh, talk to you next week, hopefully. God willing, with a, a brand new episode. Who knows what we'll be talking about, but you sure as hell know it'll be fun and exciting and uh, hopefully something you never heard before. Uh, take care, everybody. And uh, until then, take uh, take good care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.